We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. What was it like to have Arafat give you a back rub uh, and, and perhaps a gentle kiss? <laughs> well, I, I have to say it was a unique moment in my life. Um, <laughs> putting on my like super crazy techie hat. I think a lot of people in this side of the world think that the Westphalian nation state is actually not long for this earth. And that in fact, we're inhabiting the cadavers of our previous institutions, often run by almost literal cadavers in terms of our gerontocracy. And that in fact, the, the, the major organizing pr principle of human life is, is not gonna be the colored square on the map called the United States of America. What's going on in the intelligentsia is that neither the proles nor the plutocrats feel a lot of need for the wonks. Now, the proles no longer feel a need to defer to the wonks. Because I can find out on the internet, I can find out on chatbot. I don't need you, you jerk who've been to school for 30 years and have your nose stuck up in the air about how much smarter you are than everybody else. There was a moment, by the way, where Boris Johnson said, well, if we had more women in power, you know, this would never have happened in Ukraine. If Putin were a woman, he wouldn't have invaded Ukraine. Have you never heard of Catherine the Great? What is, what is wrong with you? <laughs> Hi everyone, today Walter Russell Mead joins us on Moment of Zen. Walter is a senior fellow at Hudson Institute, an author and contributor to the Wall Street Journal and Tablet Magazine, and now hosts a podcast called What Really Matters. Let's dive in. Walter, thanks for joining us on Moment of Zen. It's great to be here. Walter, by way of introduction, why don't you give a brief background on some of the topics that you're most interested in and that you spent most time in? All right, great. Well, I... Uh... I guess my big interest is uh, the sort of evolution of the global capitalist system, uh, the way it's changing our society, changing the world, trying to get a handle on, on the various opportunities and uh, dangers it provides at the moment. We seem to be edging toward another one of these great global catastrophic wars that have marked the last hundred years. We're having a the information revolution is disrupting every society on earth. Um, so it's a, it, and, and here in the United States, we're having fundamental questions about who we are as a nation, and as a people. So there's lots to think about. You have a series on tablet um, and uh, that, that people should definitely check out. Um, and w one, of, one of your posts is called the, the American Crisis. Um, why don't you talk about what you were trying to do uh, in, in that post um, and, and in, in that series more broadly? Sure. Um, one of the things you find interesting about American politics, if you spend any time thinking about it, is that, uh, first of all, we're incredibly polarized. And second, most of our politics seems to be backward looking, focused on nostalgia. So you have, for a lot of the left, there's this idea that back in the 60s and 70s, we had this wonderful, highly regulated social democratic uh, economic system and you know people in as, as they imagined in the good old days everyone was more equal factory workers had jobs for life everything was good and then a bunch of evil capitalists came along and destroyed this quasi-utopian society 
And, and so what we need to do is go back. We need to bring the factories back. It's almost like the Plains tribes talking in the LDNLS, bring back the buffalo, and then everything will be fine again. So you've got that kind of nostalgia, but then on the right, too, I think you find this, this nostalgia for, again, an imagined past. It's Ozzie and Harriet. Everyone is happy. Everyone is living in a nice nuclear family. Everything, everyone behaves. Everyone goes to church or synagogue or whatever. And, you know, both of those, neither of those visions, I think, is going to get us anywhere in the 21st century. Um, we should be thinking about what's possible in the future. But also, both of those approaches, I think, sort of don't look at some of the deep pathologies that were at work in our, in our society even then and have only grown worse since. And again, people on the left and the right are united in their, in their perception that American culture is kind of materialistic, that um, you know, we've lost a lot of the social capital, uh, communities are weak, there's a kind of, um, you know, no one is particularly happy with the kind of state of American politics, uh, morality, these things. But the, the, the ways these are understood are basically keyed into these dueling forms of nostalgia. So I'm trying to take a look, step back from this, look at it in some kind of historical perspective. And what I find is that the, the concept of the information revolution is really useful as a, as a way to try to organize some of these different perceptions and bring them together. So, you know, the, the Industrial Revolution is the only thing that we have, ex have in our history that is even roughly comparable to the scale of change we're seeing in the, in the Information Revolution. And you, you look back at what happened during the Industrial Revolution, fundamental change in the nature of the state huge changes in the family, in the business firm, in religious organizations, in the way people make a living. Cities of, of 10 million spring up, where in the past a million was about as big as a city ever got. Huge cities develop overnight. And let's not forget the first wars of the industrial age were fought with uh, cavalry and the last war, World War II, with nuclear weapons. So enormous change. We are, I think, what's happening to us today is, is change on that kind of scale or even greater. And you'll, it's, it's the most common thing in the world to hear from everybody from, you know, tech bros to social, you know, we public, hapless public intellectuals who don't even know how to turn on our computer without help. But, you know, the information revolution is dynamic, it's changing everything, but that coexists with an expectation that nothing really important is going to change. Everything is going to go on as it was before. And it's not. Our social institutions are changing, our political ideologies are woefully inadequate to the challenges that we face. So I'm, I'm just trying to work my way through these things. Walter, the if you kind of take the frame of the industrial revolution ends with world war two and FDR and this kind of blue social model, it's interesting to think that, okay, we don't actually have an updated social model for the information age, right? Like we're, 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 and arguably maybe not the tail end, but, but getting to a point where we're, we're seeing the signs of fraying of, of the, the FDR model. 
And in a world where we don't have the, I don't know, the same religious and civic institutions that, that kind of bound us as a society and the kind of weird happenstance of post-World War II, we're kind of the only major developed country that has an economy and, and we're kind of rebuilding the rest of the world. I'm, I'm curious, like, how, how you, you think about that, given that that model kind of emerged also in a very weird period economically. Right. Well, you have to remember that, yes, you know, sort of from, from say, 1945, 1950 on, we had this social model that seemed to work and people were happy with. But that's after about 100 years of industrial revolution. Chaos, revolution, civil wars, and I'm not just talking about the United States, rise of communism, rise of fascism. So the so this this blue model, this sort of fully formed, regulated industrial economy, which kept most people mostly happy most of the time, uh, only comes at the end of an incredibly long process. Now, all of us, you guys, you know, I think are too young to really remember when when this was sort of really functioning and people really thought it would go on forever. But there was an amazing time of sort of technological, technocratic hubris post-World War II, where we really thought that the big brains had figured it out and that every policy problem had an answer that was in a textbook. And the art of politics was basically finding the right smart guy who'd go to the textbook, find the answer, and then you as the politician do the social engineering, whatever you have to do to, to you know, get the stupid proles to go along with what was good for them. Uh, but that was a high, that's a highly unusual situation in modern society when we think when pe the people in charge thought they understood how the system worked in you know think of the British facing the Chartist revolt in you know the middle of the 19th century they don't really know why this thing is happening what do we do about it where it's going to go you're dealing with problems that are erupting on the fly. And so we have a, you know, we have a whole technocratic culture of getting credentialed, going to school, thinking inside the box, formed by this era in society when it seemed as if the answers were known and we knew what to do about everything. And now a, a group of people who've been socialized into this are suddenly confronted with a whole range of issues and developments that, that they, they don't understand. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. If you don't already subscribe to Turpentine's industry-leading newsletters, like our new daily AI newsletter, Emergent Behavior, or Media Empires, you should. But that's not what I'm here to tell you about. The platform we use to power these newsletters is called Beehive, and it's excellent. First of all, it was started by the same early team who helped build Morning Brew into a $75 million newsletter business. And they built Beehive to offer that same powerful functionality to anyone sending emails. From essayists to business owners, the platform is beautiful, their text editor is intuitive, and they help you scale your audience with custom growth features. Beehive has powerful tools to help you monetize your content. You can easily launch paid subscriptions or pursue an advertising model. The Beehive platform will even connect you to premium brands to sponsor your newsletter. Not only do we use them, but thousands of the top newsletters in the world also use them, like Milk Road, Blockworks, The Lindy Newsletter, and so many more. Beehive's founder hooked up Moment of Zen listeners with a sweet deal. Get 20% off for three months with code MOZ. Visit beehive.com, that's B-E-E-H-I-I-V.com, to get started. 
Walter, I'd be curious, you know, one of my favorite books that you've written, God and Gold, uh, highly recommended. There's a lot of talk about the individualism that exists within the kind of call it Anglosphere and, and how that form of both Protestantism and capitalism kind of came together to create the, the world we have today. I'd be curious, your thoughts, having written that book and, and kind of thought about that topic, it feels like we also live in a very individualistic society today, even like hyper individualistic. You know, I, I, I don't necessarily live close to my family. I moved to some coastal city for a job. I live in this very atomized existence, um, at least in the West. And, and I wonder if that contributes a lot to some of the kind of social set of challenges that we have today. I, I'd be curious how, how you think about that. Yeah, well, the key to all these things, I think, is, is balance. You know, life is not either or. You're either an individualist, you know, with a, with a completely self-contained, hedonistic or whatever lifestyle, or you are a rigid communitarian marching in lockstep with your extended family out to your fifth cousins. But there's a balance. And what I've said historically, one of the reasons that the Anglo-American world has had such success with capitalism is that we had we combined stable institutional and cultural forms with a very individual with, with an opening for individualism. And people didn't feel that they were necessarily opposed to each other. So say in France, when the French Revolution comes along, you have this very sharp conflict between the church representing a kind of historic continuity, which sees the monarchy and the nobility and, and all of the fairly rigid structures of, of early modern France as necessary. And then the revolution, which feels it has to break the church to move forward in, into, the, into a modern existence. English history is much more a kind of small shifts and accommodations. And very often you find in Britain and the United States that some of the people who've been at the cutting edge of social change have actually been very deeply grounded in very traditional forms of belief. So that, that ability to hold a balance between um, a very individualistic, forward-looking psychology and yet a grounding in some kind of sense of tradition and mores, you know, we, we, we seem to be under the stresses of the information revolution and, and uh, we, we're having trouble holding that balance. But I think it's much too soon to say that um, we've lost it. Uh, I think actually I'm a bit optimistic. I think some of the social changes we're seeing now are gonna be pushing us back toward a healthier balance between these two. Walter, one of your other posts to set the table of this conversation was a, was about the what you call the 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 A bomb, but not the atomic bomb, the Abrahamic bomb. Um, can you unpack what you were trying to get across in that post? Yeah, this is another. This is something I think that that at some level all of us know, but but maybe it's so obvious we we don't bother thinking about it or reflecting on it, which is that beyond any doubt the most important revolutionary change in, in human society has been what you can call the rise of the Abrahamic religions or the family of Abraham. You know, 3,000, 4,000 years, 5,000 years ago, whatever, in the Middle East, 
some wandering, some guy in a city heard a voice telling him to go out and wander, and, and this voice, which he understood to be the voice of God, said, you know, go to this new land, and you're gonna, your descendants are going to bless the whole world. Christians, Jews, and Muslims all look back to that encounter with, of Abraham with God as the origin of their faith and of their worldview, of their civilization, really. And we've seen over the millennia this, the, the people who are in this family uh, have grown from literally a family somewhere in the Middle East to at this point being over half the population of the world. But I would also say that, you know, Abrahamism is not just about worshiping a particular deity of the Middle East, ancient Middle East. There's a view of history that the Abrahamic religions share, which actually is widely shared among secular people today, and even quite ardent atheists are Abrahamists in a basic way, that this Abrahamic picture is that, you know, in the early days of humanity, everything was fine. We lived in harmony with each other, we, and in nature, it was just fantastic. That's the Garden of Eden in the religious stories, and that's the kind of primitive, communism of Marxism, and it's this sort of, you know, fantasized dream world of early Rousseauian, uh, you know, harmony that, that we see in a lot of the left today, non-Marxist left. And then something happens, and this blissful, idyllic human race falls into history. That is class divisions, race, culture, money, we start fighting, we're not in harmony with ourselves, we're not in harmony with nature, and everything is just spiraling down, except, again, in the Abrahamic religions, God decides not to let us sort of go off our own destructive way, but since prophets, lawgivers, acts in history to sort of turn the human story back. And the goal is at the end of history, to borrow a phrase that was pretty frequently used 30 years ago, at the end of history, we're going to be back to a higher version of that original paradise. We'll live in harmony with each other. We'll live in harmony with nature. Uh, poverty, you know, we'll probably live a very long time. Sickness will be rare. Equality will be, every, it'll be just lovely, right? And that's, that's paradise in the Abrahamic religions, but obviously in, in Marxism, that's the true communism that is just down the road. And for liberalism, the sort of dominant civic faith of the United States and much of the West, that's how liberal institutions and liberal values will restore humanity to that kind of early harmony. And so in that sense, this vision, this vision of Abrahamic history is dominant almost everywhere in the world today. And some of the ethical and, and intellectual foundations of this are widely accepted. For example, that you know, there is um, uh, one, uh, the, 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 the world is monocausal or, or rational. You can, if, if I do math in my head, that can actually tell me something about quasars billions of light years away. Again, in the religions, this is because there's one creator who made the whole thing, and it's sort of congruent with his nature. 
But among secular people, there's a kind of, they carry this element of Abrahamic religion into their intellectual world as well. So now the downside maybe of some of this, or rather one of the more interesting features is in a time like ours, when the end of history seems to be very real and very close, when, for example, the atom bomb could destroy us all at any given moment, or climate change could wipe us out in a few decades, or, or you know, AI is going to attain sentience and take over. Or in maybe more benign ways, we learn to extend the human lifespan indefinitely, we upload ourselves to the internet, who knows what. But we seem to be at this moment where human history as we've known it is moving or may move to some either catastrophically good or utopian-esque, fantastically great stage. And politics then becomes about how do we either stave off catastrophe or attain utopia? And that's a very different kind of politics from politics when you're not living under the shadow of the Abrahamic end of history. One thing that you also say that was surprising to me is this idea, there's this broad idea that sort of um, religion's peak is behind us. Um, and that um, you know, among brilliant people all over the world that we're becoming less religious. Um, and, and you point out that that's like a uniquely Western thing and that globally overall, in fact, um, you know, religions are more popular, or at least the Abrahamic religions are, are more popular than ever. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, the, the numbers are amazing. Uh, Africa, uh, sub-Saharan Africa, uh, had only a tiny number of Christians at 1950, at the end of the colonial era. Today, there's something like 350 to 400 million Christians there. And we're seeing not only religious conversions, but changes in religious demography as Pentecostalism has gained adherence across Latin America. Uh, Christian Korea, South Korea, is a, uh, Christianity is the largest religion in South Korea today. That was certainly not true 50 or 100 years ago. So things are happening. But I say more than this, um, it's not just that more people are professing religion. It is that um, politics has become infused with religion. So that instead of entering a secular era when religious concerns drop to the background, we've actually entered an era of, where politics threatens to become religious war. So if the wrong party wins, we'll take the wrong policy decisions about climate change, and that's going to kill all life on the planet or destroy human civilization. And when you're in that kind of, when, when those are the stakes of the next election, the old rules no longer seem so compelling. All these liberal procedural rules about, you know, majority rule, but if the majority is going to kill us all, why should we let an uninformed majority rule? If And so we, we find people reacting to disinformation or misinformation on the internet as an existential threat to human society, as opposed to just a bunch of stupid people yelling at each other. Um, so we're, um, I think we're, we actually are in an, a, an era of religious conflict 
but of religious conflict, uh, many of whose participants, A, don't know that they're in a religious conflict, and B, who think, you know, who are atheists. Disinformation is heresy. Yes, it is heresy. And you see, it's evil to let it spread. It's evil to let it, you are not doing your duty if you don't suppress heresy. Professor Mead, I, I agree with you. I, I don't think we're living in a secular age. In fact, it seems like one of the most religious ages I've ever lived in. I often say there's a conservation of religion. Religion never goes away. It just gets replaced by bad religion, in my opinion. So I, I totally agree with you there. Um, I, I will say it's interesting, your, your Abramaic um, you know, tradition post that I was just skimming over just now. Yeah, so as a piece of personal background, I, I converted from Catholicism to Judaism, actually. And so I kind of hopped. Mm. I kind of ripped out the Gospels from my Bible, so to speak, and tossed it aside. And I've written about it for Tablet Magazine in the past, actually, a, a publication I think we've both, we've both published. In. And, mm -hmm. um, and, I mean, you're definitely correct, right, that the, 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 the Abramaic tradition is, is very real. And I think it's as dominant as you say. I, I do think there's a difference. And I think getting to, the, getting to your book, by the way, which I'm going to plug on the podcast, Ark of the Covenant, probably the best book on U.S.-Israel relations that I've read, um, I think what, you know, there's a lot of drama in this book, as you can tell, it's a pretty thick book. <laughs> and um, I think a lot of the drama in that book can be explained by, I think the differences, I, I, often in the U.S. we gloss over the differences, saying the Judeo-Christian outlook, um, which is interesting, but I think there's actually a big difference between the Judaic and the Christian outlook on things. And I think a lot, and that difference often explains a lot of the drama in your book, which is how a, a universalizing liberal post-Christian mindset like the American one has trouble grappling with the particularistic eth ethno-religious drama of the Jews, right, as expressed by the Jewish state. And just to, just to mention a specific thing about this, and I'm totally channeling, channeling uh, Dara Horn, who wrote this great book called People Love Dead Jews, who's also written for Tablet Magazine. You know, she says that she describes Christianity as the, it's, it's the religion of happy endings, right? At the, at, literally at the end of the, of the Christian Bible, you have the book of Revelation, in which you do have this apocalyptic, you, you mentioned this duality between the apocalypse and utopia. I mean, th that is the end of the Bible, right? There's this apocalypse that sounds, you know, fearsome and terrible, but then Jesus Christ comes back and reigns in the beautiful world described in the book of Isaiah, when the wolf shall lay down with the lamb, and, you know, we shall beat um, our swords and the plowshares and all the rest of the utopic vision. But that's a very Christian vision of the world. The Jewish Bible doesn't end that way. The Jewish Bible ends with Moses, after this massive, you know, epic exodus, getting kind of the promised land, doing a little bit of uh, assigning land here and there, and just dying. And that's the end of it. <laughs> you don't even know how it ends. There, there is no happy ending. And so I, I, and so I think a lot of the, the, you mentioned here, a lot of the, the sort of foreign policy approaches to Israel are always obsessed with the idea of a perfect two-state or whatever the case might be, peaceful solution is possible. And I think if you talk to Israelis now, it's much more Moses at the end of the Bible feeling of like, well... We'll see. <laughs> and uh, right. they don't necessarily believe in the happy ending. Yeah, although I have to say, I'm not so sure that this is a difference between Christianity and Judaism writ large, because you, most American Jews would share the happy ending approach. Right. Um, you know, and, and American Jews tend to be among the most, you know, enthusiastic supporters of the creation of a liberal global utopia and that's been true for a hundred years so you know this is you you've got you've got jews in israel product the, the majority of jews in israel by and large is as you say focused on the particularist ethno-national quality although not without a connection to universal values because that is sort of what makes the Jew the jewish people special in in that view is that 
that it's linked to the God of all the world. He's not just the God of Israel, or he's the God of Israel, but also everybody's God. And so these things of, you know, and, and you can find this obviously among Christians. There are sects of Christians who would say, well, it's just our little, our little subgroup of Christians are the only ones who got it. And you've got Christians who believed, well, we should fight crusades to, you know, save the world. And others who say, I just want to be left alone in my little valley to do what I want to do. The same thing really among in Islam. Um, so there are different ways, I think, of being Abrahamic. Uh, and, and I would say, yes, in Judaism, the, um, the particularism always has more of an edge, in part because if... If, if there isn't particularism in Judaism, Judaism quickly disappears. People just sort of marry out of the religion or it evaporates. And so what's left generation after generation tends to be the people who either, as Herschel said, are united by the hatred of the others for us or more broadly are, are, are attracted to the, to the uniquely ethno-national quality of the Jewish faith and the Jewish people. That's right. Yeah. And it, it's funny, you put your finger on another thing that is a running theme in your book, which is that, um, you know, the diaspora Jews, right, the, the Jews in the U.S. have often very different views about Israel than, than, than Jews in Israel now. And in fact, I think it's increasingly the case. As Israel becomes more right wing, more religious, um, I mean, you feel it here a little bit. In the synagogues of the United States, there's like this massive identity crisis over how pro-Israel to be. There's a lot of growing BDS sentiment, even among American Jews in the United States. And I think it creates a wedge. I mean, the other thing also is also, I think, and a lot of American Jews don't realize this, they're frankly a lot less relevant to Israel than they used to be, right? Like the, Israel being this bizarre little experiment that, you know, Europe necessitated and American Jews financed, that's kind of gone, right? I mean, Israel has the GDP per capita higher than Germany's. It, it doesn't need the U.S. aid package for as much, and in fact, Tablet has actually written a post saying maybe we should just get rid of it, right? Like, the Israel today is not the Israel of the past, and the Israel of today doesn't really care what Jews on the Upper West Side think anymore, right? <laughs> just to be blunt about it. That's true of some Jews in Israel, heavily represented in the current government. It is not, I, you know, it's not true of all Jews in Israel. You know, it's, I mean, it, you know, that's, that's the thing. You cannot make generalizations about the Jews. Um, except that they have many points of view. But, but that is one of the, I, I think you're absolutely right, right? It, in the current government, they don't care. I was at the protest, so the protest a couple weeks ago, they famously marched from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. I was at the head of the protest, I have a photo of it, and somebody has a poster in English, which is slightly unusual, asking Biden to help rescue Israel. <laughs> Right. And so clearly yeah, this yeah, person yeah. <laughs> thought that the U.S. should play a very strong role in Israeli politics. And, and just fast forwarding to some real to some real politics going on right now. Right. There's a sort of Saudi Arabia, Israeli sort of peace deal going on. And the Biden White House wants to condition that on progress with the Palestinians, whatever that means. And I, I think that's, that's where you see the delta between what Israelis think and feel. And by the way, almost nobody mentioned the Palestinians when I was in Israel. Like I brought up everything, the settlements, this, that. The Palestinians, I mean, to be, to be blunt about it, I think even if only subconsciously, have been contained. They're in their little box and most Israelis don't think about it. It is not front and center in their minds like the way it used to be, um, which is interesting. Um, but I think it, a lot of the US foreign policy establishment, that's not true. For them, the Israel-Palestinian divide is really the front, and ten, the front and center issue of Israel. And it stopped being that in Israel. Decide another divide between the US and Israel. Yeah. Again, I think, look, I, th I do think some people on the Israeli right have overinterpreted 
the Arabs shift away from the Palestinians. I mean, I agree that a lot of things have changed, but when the Biden administration talks about needing something for the Palestinians out of this agreement, I don't think the Saudis are telling them, no, shut up, just let us make a totally cynical deal with Israel over the heads of the Palestinians. In fact, the Saudis actually do want something. And, and this is, you know, and it has to do partly with the holy site, you know, the, uh, uh, which is important to the Saudis, as whose legitimacy derives in part from their, their custodianship of Mecca and Medina. But it's, it's also, you know, there really is, we saw this in Libya, when a, when a rather unprofessional step by the Israeli foreign minister sort of outed Lib a Libyan diplomat for participating in conversations. You see the whole country, you know, people in all kinds of factions erupting. And for Israelis to think, oh, this is all in the past. We can do whatever we want on the West Bank. No one will care. There will be no consequences. Uh, that, is, that is, I think, deeply unwise. And I don't say that out of some sort of atavistic loyalty of the Oslo process or anything like that. I say it as an observer of the modern Middle East. And, you know, but this, you know, this is a, this Israeli right is, is a insurgent popular movement in some ways. It, it hasn't, I think, fully developed the, it, it, it's got some, you know, it, it's got a lot of fire in the belly. It may not have a lot of reflection in the head yet. Um, and, uh, I, you know, uh, an animal to be kosher for eating has to, has to both part the hoof, get moving, so to speak, and chew the cud, reflect. And I think uh, there may be more parting of the hoof than chewing of the cud going on there. And, but that's a process that takes time. In any case, it's, um, you know, it's an incredibly volatile situation in the Middle East. Uh, let's not forget that Iran is there. Talk about containment. I think there are people in Iran who believe that Hezbollah has now put so many missiles in southern Lebanon that are of such high quality that Israel is contained in the sense that Israel really is very, very reluctant to take major military steps against Iran because of what would be pretty serious responses from Lebanon, from, from Hezbollah. And the, the military balance is constantly changing. The Russia-Iran alliance is one that, that, that is, is concerning. So actually, I would say that, that the old U.S.-Israeli relationship is as dead as the old Middle East, but that a lot of the same tensions and conflicts are going to be here in, in a new era. And I agree the Biden administration is, is, is kind of sentimental about Oslo process and very nostalgic and backward looking, but the Palestinians are not gonna go away or the, or the fact that it's very easy for someone who wants to, to make political capital almost anywhere in the Middle East to get there by demagoguing about Israel. And that's just a factor that's gonna, I think gonna be with us for a long time. Professor Mead, I, this is actually maybe a a good opportunity to talk a little bit about special providence and, and the different types of American foreign policy. And I know that there's been a lot of, you know, talk of, of Trump as being a Jacksonian, but I'd be curious how you'd characterize Biden and, and actually specifically where you think we're headed based on kind of things going on. You know, I'd say that, that democratic 
foreign policy since the Vietnam War, you know, since really 1968, has, has sort of been a mix of, of two schools, a, a balance shifting between them, where you've got a mix of, ham, of, of Wilsonian idealism. Let's get rid of racism. Let's, let's create gender equality around the world. Let's abolish nuclear weapons. Let's make international law real. You know, it said, let's reform the world and, and make this liberal utopia that in the long run is the only way for the United States to be safe. And that's a very important strain in, in democratic thinking. But at the same time, there's a Jeffersonianism. That is, let's limit our commitments. Let's not get in over our heads. So you'll find, say, an Obama talking about, you know, I'm going to become president. The oceans will start to recede. We're going to move toward nuclear disarmament. We're going to reconcile with all of these different countries. And then the reality is and the, the Wilsonian side of the party is always writing checks that the Jeffersonian side does not want to honor when they come due. And so you oscillate between an incredibly expansionist agenda and a, and, a, and a very limited set of means. Now, briefly, I think in the Clinton years, that was sort of overcome by just, you know, American power seems so great and you seem to be able to do anything you wanted. So the, Wilson, so the sort of world order building side didn't have to pay much attention to the cautionary side. But I would say both Obama and Biden have been deeply torn between high ambitions and very limited means. So, you know, a great example to me is the U.S. Embassy in Kabul tweets out, you know, greetings and pride month, and, you know, as the U.S. is preparing to withdraw and leave everyone in Afghanistan to the mercy of the Taliban. All right. That's the perfect example of a, of a bad fit between a Wilsonian agenda and a Jeffersonian policy. And do you think there's a place in the near future for a Hamiltonian uh, foreign policy, or maybe there's no constituency between either Republicans or, or Democrats? Well, look, I, I think the, the essence of Hamiltonian thinking has always been a sort of fruitful relationship between the federal government and American business. You know, it's sort of model, Alexander Hamilton looked at the way the Bank of England had served to both stabilize government funding and empower government spending, including government military spending, but also provide a great source of capital and credit that enabled British business to take the world by storm. And so that idea of a sound financial system that helps your business, stimulates your economy, makes you rich enough to be able to afford all the national security policy and so on that you need, and a, and a developmental federal state. That's, that's there in Hamiltonianism. But after, you know, in the early 90s, Ameri the American business community started going totally globalist. In other words, you know, I'm not an American corporation. I'm a world corporation. I'm a citizen of the world. And it doesn't matter to me. I do business in China. I do business in Germany, Japan, Sri Lanka. Uh, you know, I'm, and, and I don't expect my company or the employees of my company to have any special sense of relationship to the United States government. And the Hamiltonian agenda sort of collapsed into this 
let's let's create a borderless world where American where where the American state, American power, it has faded into the background. And when that happens, you you it, classic Hamiltonianism doesn't make sense in that context, if you see what I mean. Because the, the, there's a breakdown coming from within the business community of the linkage between the national interest and the interest of American business. So what has been happening, I think, partly because, and that is really, in my view, that is the centerpiece of the arch of American foreign policy, is that Hamiltonian thinking. Um, that sort of becomes irrelevant or, or outmoded or, or useless. And you get, I think, America starts making, since 1990, I think my foreign policy has mostly been not very successful and not very intelligent. Uh, this is something of a criticism of my own generation. I don't think the boomers are going to be remembered as master, um, masters of the geopolitical universe. But as a result of these failures, suddenly business is starting to think, wait a minute, if you're, if you're Alphabet, Google, you can't operate where China's in control. You only operate, really, you know, we're almost back to trade follows the flag, that American companies increasingly, their field of operations is connected to the health and the well-being of this American system. And I think as we see the links growing between, and, and again, oddly, it's, it's not happening so much at the level of widgets and the sort of back, back end of the economy. It's happening at the high end, the cutting edge. It's happening with IT. It's these companies that are suddenly, like it or not, being you know, put, back in, you know, put back under a flag. And we're gonna, I think we're going to see more of this simply because in our day, in, the connection between information and power is so close that states are going to care a lot more about what tech companies are operating in their countries and how they're set up and, and what they do with the data and what data do and don't they withhold from the government, et cetera. But also companies are going to see their... Um, their business model as to some degree dependent on a positive relationship with a nation state. And that, you know, and, and this I think is helping to drive the geopolitical competition that we're seeing, even as the, that geopolitical competition is affecting it. So I think we may see a kind of a renaissance of Hamiltonianism, of it now becoming the people in the C-suites are going to have to start becoming a bit more patriotic. It's also, by the way, true that, that, that as the, the country at large saw America, the American business community sort of sublimating out of any sense of common citizenship or, or loyalty to the United States, um, then public sympathy for business cratered. Because why? You know, what, what is the connection? You're incredibly rich and you're a citizen of the world. I'm lower middle class and I'm a citizen of Muskogee, Oklahoma, USA. Um, you're not my friend. You're not my ally. When you do well, it doesn't help me. And you don't have any real interest in me doing well. So that, 
that globalization, sort of excessive globalization of the American business psychology, I think laid the foundation for some of the political upheaval that we're having. And I think the answer, again, is to get back, is, is not to sort of keep trying to transcend that which cannot be transcended. Because like it or not, we're in an age of geopolitical competition. Like it or not, states matter. And they matter both to business and they matter to citizens. So I think Hamiltonianism is going to make a comeback, but it won't be, it won't be the same as what we've seen after 1990, and it won't be exactly what we saw in 1980 or 1970 either. You know, Prof Professor Mead, I think what, one thing, putting on my like super crazy techie hat, I think a lot of people like in this side of the world think that the Westphalian nation state is actually not long for this earth. And that, in fact, we're inhabiting the cadavers of our previous institutions, often run by almost literal cadavers in terms of our gerontocracy. And that, in fact, the, the, the major organizing pr principle of human life is, is not going to be the colored square on the map called the United States of America. Because that, that no longer is the basket for a set of media, values, tropes, you know, businesses. And I, I wonder, do you, do you think about what if that order were to shift or what if, what if that order were to fail? Um, just to cite... Um, one of the more interesting characters we've had on our show, a guy named uh, Balaji Srinivasan, he has this book called The Network State. And just to summarize it very quickly, it's, it's the idea that in the, you know, in the future, you're going to have political organization along this weird network of, of coalescing interests and communities, very much like we have virtual communities online, but with some actual stake on the ground, right, in some sense. And I, I know it sounds a little far-fetched, but I think a lot of us, I mean, maybe, you know, a lot of people on the call, a lot of people in this world actually live in effectively a network state as it is, right? Which maybe is what you're hinting at with this cosmopolitanism. But the, how, do you, how do you reorient society? Because guess what? The, the, the cosmopolitan businessman on the coast is not going to care about that guy from Muskogee. And I, I, and I don't see that happening unless the, alien, the aliens invade. Well, I think an alien did invade, and his name was Donald Trump. And the thing is that politics does matter. And maybe you can move from Los Angeles to X, but I think ultimately guys like Xi Jinping, you know, are not going away. Um, and states are going to matter. Um, actually, the state today remains more powerful than than a hundred years ago by orders of magnitude. You know, the 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 U.S. budget, federal budget in 1900, was like. $500 million a year. There were a lot of American individuals and many American corporations whose worth was, was greater than the budget of the United States. You know, Elon Musk is, is a drop in the bucket compared to federal spending today. It's a different, the state is a, even just considered purely economically, the state is a bigger actor. Now, now nation states, that is, that's, you know, um, I think, I think a lot of people who talk about the Westphalian nation state have no clue what they're talking about. And the kind of, you know, the, the silly thinking about what states are and aren't uh, is everywhere. Most states today, for example, are not nation states. Um, Gabon, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, uh, these are not nation states. There's no nation. There are people groups who were randomly assembled in, in a colonial era, and there's a tiny, quite avaricious, corrupt, and ineffective bureaucracy that is good only at controlling. You know, those are network states. The Congo is a network state. Um, and they're not, very, they're not very good at getting things done. Um, 
so I think there will still be this need for powerful human organization. Economic, joint economic interest is not as powerful for that as a sense of identity, belonging, common destiny. And I think these, let's call them communities of destiny rather than ethnic nation states. Uh, and, and I would agree with you that the nature of these communities could change. In, in 1800, people in, in modern Czechoslovakia, then Bohemia, didn't necessarily think of themselves as either Czechs or Germans or anything else. A hundred years later, they certainly did. So these things, these identities are not fixed, but they, they uh, you know, one of the reasons the EU is so, so sort of weak as an international actor is that French people don't feel as loyal to, invested in, bound by the EU as they do by France. And let's, we, we can't forget that politics is a competitive process and Entities that are able to command loyalty act uh, sacrificial loyalty. People will die and be killed for the kill and, and, and die for them. Um, dedicate their entire lives to their well-being. Those entities are going to have considerable advantages in any contest for power. Technolo technology will change the nature of the state. I have absolutely no idea. That's been no, no reason to think otherwise. It's been going on for centuries. The changes will be dramatic. Many of them will be unexpected. But I really think that, this, that, that human, organiz human organization and power cannot be divorced from a kind of, from, from these senses of loyalty and connection and that a discombobulated entity is going to be at a disadvantage when it's faced with even a quite negative and backward-looking but united group of people. Just to add one comment to that, I mean, you're right that the, your comment about the nation-state is, is obviously correct, but even the nation-states that you probably would cite as nation-states, right, were themselves invented, right? I, I think of Benedict Anderson's Imagined Communities and the role of what he called print capitalism, the Internet of its time, in constructing artificial artificial entities like Germany and Italy, which it's worth remembering, Germany is younger than the state of Florida as a political entity, right? So is Italy, as a matter of fact, right? These were invented things, right? What we call Italian didn't exist before. I mean, even now, Spanish is, in fact, the language of Castile and Leon. It's not really the, the, the language of most of Spain. That was also an invention. I think you're pushing that a little too far. I think Machiavelli had an idea of Italy in the, in the 16th century. Um, you know, and but it, but you're right that it was not, uh, you know, there there was not a political agenda behind it. But when when they called up forth the idea of Italy, it didn't, you know, people said, oh, what a what a weird and original idea. Never even thought of that before. These things do change, but they grow. They don't just spring out of nowhere. They grow gradually, and they grow often by a power of attraction. They appeal to something. Yes. We're going to see different forms of this in the future. I have absolutely no doubt. Um, but, I th and, but I think, again, the states that are, that are connected to these communities will be more powerful than states that try to exist in a kind of a vacuum based on abstract calculations of either interest or value. Which, to the, that point, then, a state like Israel rooted in an actual 
you know, community of destinies, so to speak, right. is, 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 has a bright future as a, as a cohesive entity. To the extent that those who share the identity can agree on what it is and what it means. But yes, and that's the thing. The stronger the sense of identity, the more people fight about what it means, what that identity means, because it matters more. You know, people don't really argue all that much about, say, what the Mauritanian identity might mean, right? Um, but they argue passionately in France about what's the true French path or whatever. So, again, we, we sometimes think that evidence of, of conflict and dissension in a society is a sign of its sort of weakness and permeability. Actually, it's often a sign of deep strength that people are so, and, and I think much of, our, much of what we see in the United States today, by the way, is about people who really want things to be right here because part of their idea of the United States is that it's a place where we try to do the right thing. So Walter, I mean, one question we often ask amongst ourselves is, um, and definitely there's a school of thought, which I, I'm gonna guess you don't lend a lot of credence to, that you know, there's an, there's an era of post-liberalism, right? Or that liberalism has run its course and something comes after. And this, you know, how much of it is real versus just like an online, role play, obviously it's somewhat questionable, but there's clearly an appetite for the thought of, is there something coming after or is, or getting back to the end of history, I love Fukuyama by the way, and I think he's one of the most misunderstood intellectuals in, in recent history. And, and we are in the end of history. He was, he was absolutely right. You read the last chapter of the end of history, which almost nobody did. And it describes our age, I think, particularly well. But I, part of the, part of Fukuyama's big prediction, right, was that there would be nothing coming after, right? There was no, it, it, the communists were wrong. There wasn't going to be communism after there was liberal capitalism. So do, do you feel that, there's, that there is a post-liberalism happening or something happening, or, or you at a very high level agree with Fukuyama that in some sense this is it when it comes to human political development? Well, I, I guess specifically just about liberalism. Um, liberalism, you know, has been, die, has died repeatedly. You know, the 1930s were peak post-liberalism. Where, where everyone agreed that liberalism was this old, dead, 19th century thing that had absolutely zero meaning in our bright, new, modern world. And maybe it's Mussolini's fascism, maybe it's Hitler's Nazism, maybe it's Stalin, maybe it's Trotsky, but no thinking person thought there was a future for liberalism at all. And what I find, and when I listen to people who think of themselves as post-liberals argue with each other, generally speaking, it devolves into an argument between liberal post-liberals and illiberal post-liberals. That is, liberal post-liberals who actually still think, you know, things like tolerance and so on are based, let's try to be liberal about post, being post-liberal, and then illiberal post-liberals want to like censor everybody, you know, or have a, have a sort of active animus against liberal values. So I, I, am not, I have not seen myself any significant sign of a genuinely new intellectual approach. Now what I hear is people speaking out of their experience, which is to say, they're saying, you know what, the America, the ideological framework of the America I grew up in just doesn't have any appeal to me anymore. I don't see any life in it. You know, that's a... And there, I guess my own sense is that roughly since the 1990s, 
we've a lot of our public life has been a fight between two forms of liberal fundamentalism and there can be such a thing as liberal fundamentalism though I think that's contrary to the ethos core ethos of liberalism that um, you had the market you know market fundamentalism free markets will fix everything and the less we interfere blah 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 all of that and then you have what you can think of as rights and individual rights fundamentalism you know and I define myself by my desire and I'm not accountable to anyone you know all of this kind of stuff and human rights are, are the only basis for politics and policy and all of this and both sides kind of believed that their form of liberal fundamentalists would infallibly lead to utopia. All right. Nothing less liberal than either of those two things can be imagined. Because liberalism at its core is about saying, you know, well, this is true, but this is also true, and it's not so easy, and we need to kind of make a little space and leave things open to the future, and you know, not, don't rush ahead so fast that we lose touch with what's good, but don't get so stuck, you know, admiring what's good that we're not open to the real need for change. So I think what happened is that, that American liberalism entered a period of, of profound decadence, and that decadence is kind of in expiring. You know, the, it's sort of these two forms of fundamentalism have, are both evidently failing. And for a lot of younger people who don't have any direct personal experience with, with liberal liberalism, they, you know, this is what they know, and these two things are obviously dead. And, but I think that, that, that what they will find is that in post-liberalism, you choose between liberal post-liberalism and illiberal post-liberalism, and you haven't really gotten very far. But I'm happy profoundly happy that people are critiquing these two these two fundamentalist distortions of the liberal worldview. And do you feel like that comes out of a, a lack of a, a shared enemy, right? The the Soviet Union disappears and, and now the fundamentalists are, are free to fight amongst themselves? Well, I, look, I think the civil religion of the United States has always been a kind of secular, deterministic, utopian liberalism you know, sort of Calvinism without God, a benign Calvinism without God, that, that things are predestined to go in the right direction. Um, and, you know, we're, we're, it, we're, gonna, we're moving toward utopia. In America, we're moving toward utopia, and we're going to lift the whole world to utopia by the power of, of our example, or maybe the example of our power, either way. And so there we are, and we all, we interpret just about everything that happens through the light of this set of ideas. Um, and so the fall of the Soviet Union, absolutely. But you know what? You go back, fall of Nazi Germany, just read all those things idiots were saying. And actually, you know, they weren't idiots, but they were carried away by the United Nations. The amount of hope that serious people invested that this would now finally establish global peace, world governance, all these fabulous things. Look at 1918 and Woodrow Wilson and that, that sort of triumphal era. Look at before World War I when they really thought, okay, Western civilization has done it. This, this sort of 
naive optimism is sort of the default position of the American mind. And, uh, you know, we individuals can kind of shake ourselves loose from it and maybe become critical and reflective. It's very difficult for our political class as a whole to do that. I would say they've largely failed. And so what I see after 1990 is yet another example of the American intelligentsia profoundly misinterpreting um, the, the, the direction of world history based on this underlying civil optimism, civil religious optimism. And so if you were to take that to today, from your point of view, is there something that the American intelligentsia is misunderstanding about whether based on history or, or geopolitics that's happening today that, that's similar, or is it just a continuation of the 90s? Right. Well, now, I do think something really interesting is happening to the intelligentsia today because, you know, the modern the intelligentsia of the industrial, let's call it the progressive intelligentsia. And by that, I don't mean like far-flung, you know, way out people in the faculty lounge of today, you know, the way, super, super progressive. I mean like, you know, 1920s and 30s progressive, John Dewey, all of this stuff. Um, what they saw was that society was divided into two groups of people. The ignorant, selfish, common people, workers, and then the ignorant, selfish plutocrats. Um, and left to themselves, the plutocrats would so oppress the common people that the common people would rise in revolt and um, just, you know, and you'd get communism or who knows what horrible things. And so what was needed was this intermediary class of intellectuals who has studied social science, who read peer, wrote peer-reviewed articles, and, and, and were concerned for the general social good, not for their own petty, selfish advantage. And so the American reform for like 100 years has been about taking power out of the hands of either grubby populist demagogues or else greedy, nasty plutocrats and placing it in the hands of Fauci's and, you know, the hands of the, of the bureaucracies, right? And that, you know, let's, let's take the politics out of government, so to speak. Um, and they've seen their task as, in particular, educating and uplifting the poor and disciplining them. So, pro, you know, prohibition was, was part of their, you know, we've, we've got to get the, get the proles off uh, liquor so that they can be more sensible. But they saw that as part of the same reform. This is we've got to break the power of Tammany Hall, and we've got to go away from having civils, having the spoil system so they just elect grubby political followers. No, you have to pass a test to work for the government. So only by merit, and by merit we mean getting good scores on academic tests because really what is more meritorious, what possible human activity is more meritorious than that. So this was, this is the golden age of the wonks. And what's happening today, I think, and this is, this is really central to a lot of what's going on in the intelligentsia, is that neither the, the, the common, the proles, nor the plutocrats feel a lot of need for the, the wonks. 
um, you know, back in 1900, the average American might have had an eighth grade education. You're, you're a farmer who's lost your farm, or you're an immigrant come to America from overseas, you might not even be able to read or write. And the teacher in the school knows everything about how your kid can function. And the doctor is the source of the only medical information you're going to get. Trusting the, trusting the credentialed people was what everybody needed to do. And, um, you know, my f grandfather was a doctor in a small town in South Carolina. He was almost like the voice of God himself because nobody could go to Dr. Google and get second, third, 15th, 20th opinions, right? Or listen to Vivek, um, you know, sort of pumping his latest quack cure for some ailment. Uh, you know, none of that existed where it was, you know, not well. So, but now the proles no longer feel a need to defer to the wonks because I can find out on the internet. I can find out on chatbot. I don't need you, you jerk who've been to school for 30 years and have your nose stuck up in the air about how much smarter you are than everybody else. I don't actually need you anymore. And by the way, you've done a lousy job at taking care of me against the plutocrats. And the plutocrats, by and large, are saying, you know, you people really have no idea what you're doing. You don't understand the emerging tech economy. You're hopelessly backward. Go away. Don't bother us. Those of you who are smart are working for me already in my tech company, and the rest of you are like, you know, not good at math and, and really have no visible function. And so we, a lot of what's going on in American culture and American politics right now is the sort of effort of this professional managerial class to either find a new role for itself or simply defend its position. And a lot of what you hear is sort of rage against people who are defying it. Um, uh, and again, the reality, I would say, with the information revolution is that the wonks and that's me, by the way. I'm not excluding myself from this is, this is probably you guys, too. This is our class, right? Um, we, uh, we, we no longer really have the answers in the way that we did 20 years ago when every economics textbook would tell you exactly what you should do. And the peer-reviewed science you know, had, had a lot more prestige. Something like COVID comes along or chat GPT, and nothing in your manuals helps you deal with it. And I think that, you know, so we're, we're having the wonk class of America is facing a kind of an existential challenge. And, and, it's, and it's the legitimacy of its role in social leadership is being questioned on the left and on the right in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of levels. And I would say so far it's not doing a very good job of it's, you know, I think we haven't done that badly at defending our turf, but we haven't done that that well at, um, uh, you know, convincing people of our legitimacy. It's interesting. One, one other thing we've been talking about on our podcast, or even just among us three the past couple of years, is this idea of going back to Israel, is would Israel hold? You know, we've been quoting, uh, you know, referring to Joseph Henrik's book, uh, you know, Weird, about how sort of, you know, the Western package um, just sort of shatters um, sort of 
you know, uh, historic group group identities. And Antonio has been on the side that Israel will hold or has been holding and will hold. And there have been some of us in the group who've been, you know, wondering whether uh, sort of wokeness or sort of, you know, sort of this extreme progressivism will will permeate um, that culture with, with the kids getting cell phones and, you know, TikTok and the whole sort of package. Um, Antonio, I'm, I'm curious for your uh, like, feel free to take a, a victory lap. But did I articulate that that well or like? What do you think about that? Well, I don't know about a victory lap. I, <laughs> um, but, but yes, I mean, I, I do. I think we often overstress the fact that, and we've had this debate inside our group chats, that just because America or you know Europeans watch a Netflix show doesn't mean that American culture actually has that much influence, right? And I think the further you go away from the Anglo-American sort of cultural mold, I think you saw it most recently with the French riots in Paris, the whole BLM movement didn't happen, right? They tried playing the BLM. They tried loading the BLM software. It's like using Microsoft software on like a Mac device, and it just doesn't run, right? Like it just ended after a week, even though Americans thought, oh my God, because again, they see themselves. One thing Americans do is they always see foreign... They see their own domestic political neuroses and everything that happens overseas. And they don't quite understand that sometimes the software doesn't quite run. And I think that's, that's particularly true in the case of Israel, in which, again, this, I think Professor Mead hinted at it earlier, right? American Jews do care about that secular universalist mold. But increasingly in Israel, and I think Israel is different than much of the, broadly, the West, in that unlike almost every other Western democracy, it's moved to the right and become much more explicitly religious over time. Right. And that's just not true in the United States. And, you know, if you want to if you think that's a contentious statement, go, go back and listen to an Obama speech from 2008. Right. And consider, you know, what sort of politician could run on any sort of Democratic Party ticket now on what a fairly normie candidate said even, you know, 10, 15 years ago. That's in the case of Israel, it's gone the other way. Right. And so I think in some sense, I don't know if it's going to make it immune to that triumph of liberalism everywhere, but I, I think that. That in many ways is the collision. I, I wrote a piece about it, Walter, about my time there, and, and, and Lyle also tablet wrote another piece. And it's like a lot of the Israeli left, what they say is we want Israel to be a country like any other. And what, what they mean by that is they want it to be a country like Sweden or the United States, where much of your identity comes from what you consume, frankly, and your social status. And it's a country for everybody. Uh, there isn't this Jewish exceptionalism, particularism. Uh, you don't see people with little hats on their heads or women with headscarves. Like you just, none of that exists, right? And, and, and there's part of Israel that's, that actually actively says no. And it's not like a LARP. It's not a role play of like, you know, the guys with little avatars on Twitter who supposedly go to Latin mass, they really, are, they really do have a religious alternative to the West. And, the, and you can live it, and maybe it's a little poorer, and maybe you're not watching Netflix, but it's like a real thing that a lot of Israel lives. Right. And, so, and so I think that's a, that, that is a real, I don't know if it's going to win, to be clear, but it is a real alternative to that, yes. I agree. I mean, I do think there's a problem with that in that most of the people in Israel, not all, who know how to operate the things that make Israel externally strong and rich are not the ones who are sharing in this religious revival. And so, you know, um, if Israel becomes, in a sense, more like the rest of the Middle East, you know, in being not Western in its orientation and pretty tribal in its loyalties, would it also become more like the Middle East in terms of the rest of the Middle East in terms of not having a very strong state? or not being able to defend itself very well. And this is, so I, I think the question in Israel is really interesting because I actually think the two sides actively need each other. And that, 
you know, the sort of some of the some of the people on the right who are just sort of hoping, you know, fine, get your passport, move to the EU and take your stupid tech company with you. Um, that's that's not really a very viable approach to Israel's future. So there's going to have to be more thinking there. And that's, you know, and it's hard because we're talking about two two tribal identities. And I do, you know, I do sometimes think about how historically what happens is Israel is basically united under, actually it's not united under David for even all of his reign. He's like, you know, only reigns over part of Israel a lot of the time. And then right when Solomon dies, it breaks into two kingdoms and stays that way until they both disappear. So, you know, the, the future of the Jewish people is one thing. The future of the Jewish state is always up for grabs. Um, and the history of the Jewish people is that state building is not, does not necessarily come naturally to them. And the most extraordinary, in, in many ways to me, the most extraordinary figure in modern Jewish history remains Ben-Gurion because he never lost sight of state building. And I love the story, I mean, I, I love what happened in the War for Independence when on the, you know, you've got the right-wing militia, basically with Begin and the Irgun, and they've got some weapons coming in on a ship that they want to use for themselves. And this is at a time when the whole country is facing an existential war of survival, and the memory of the Holocaust is right over their heads. And Ben-Gurion basically sends troops and would basically rather sink the ship and lose all the weapons than allow this militia to get control of them. But at the same time, at roughly the same time, he's got this problem, the most elite units of the Israeli military fighting forces, the Palmach, you know, really have a self-identity and they're very far to the left even of Israeli society, which at the time was quite left. And in, in fact, when, when Stalin died years later, their party newsletter, uh, newspaper, the headline was, we have lost our Stalin. And, and, and Ben-Gurion, at the risk of a political crisis that would divide the army and the cabinet, basically forced the Palmach leadership to integrate their units under state command. So Ben-Gurion had to basically screw both sides to build a state. Now. Is there someone in Israel who can do that now? Well, as one comment, in case people are wondering what the ship about, I, I assume you're referring to the 1948 Altalena incident in which smuggled arms yeah. uh, under Begins. So depending on who's telling the story, Professor Mead, uh, it's either uh, Ben-Gurion was the hero, even though he opened fired, or it was Begin who resisted the temptation of starting a civil war and shooting back because right. it was his men who were actually getting shot at. So depending on who tells the story, as is often the case in Israel, depends who, who the hero is. Um, and you know what? It's exactly the same for the Palmach, because right. they'll say, their supporters would say, it was our refute, you know, we decided not to push it to the end. We gave yes. in. Okay, so, <laughs> yes. all right. So, uh, uh, again, this common sense of statehood among people who basically hate each other and continue to hate each other right down to the present day uh, and are still bitterly divided over these events. Nevertheless, they formed a state. And the state had the monopoly of violence in its territory, something that very few other Middle East states managed to do without becoming horrible dictatorships. So, you know, that's what made Israel possible. And I think that's what has made Israel continue to grow. 
And the real question is, you know, when that happened, it was the left that was in the ascendant in Israel, the sort of Western-leaning left. And they had a kind of a constitutionalist tradition and outlook and, you know, sort of had a mold. Both Begin and Ben-Gurion have that kind of a way of thinking. Um, I'm not, I think on the, the left today, I think is somewhat decadent in its constitutional thinking, has been infected by rights fundamentalism. And the right in, in Israel, you know, doesn't necessarily, you know, you've got a big range of people and movements in there, but a lot of them are kind of alien, mentally, almost as alien to this tradition as people in Yemen. So how do you, you know, under these new and more different, you have a state, but, but a lot of the preconditions that made it possible are a little weaker than they were in the beginning, even though the state is stronger. How do you negotiate it? And that's, you know, building, building the state of Israel is a struggle. I don't think success is, is predetermined, but I, I see all the things, I can see all the pieces you would need to do this. I just hope they manage to accomplish it. Well, it's funny you mentioned Yemen. The reason why the right often doesn't understand that constitutional order is because they're from Yemen, actually, and they're Mizrahi Jews who yes, actually came no, from Yes, no, exactly. <laughs> right. That's why I brought it up. Right, 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 right. Well, Professor Mead, I mean, you're, you're, you're wading into dangerous waters here. It seems like you're starting to comment on the judicial reform, which, as you know, is like the most burning issue of the day in Israel. And, uh, I, you know, it's really funny. Uh, you riff it on in your book that the U.S. is a covenantal nation, right? And the Jews are obviously a covenantal people. And yet Israel has no constitution, right? It has a declaration of independence and a sort of basic law that was passed in the 80s and 90s. Um, do you want to go into that a little bit? Like, what, what, I don't think most Americans actually even understand kind of what's at stake and why everyone's so angry in Israel. Do, it, what's your take on it, Professor Mead? Well, look, I think, you know, obviously in America, we are no strangers to big political fights over the composition of the Supreme Court. Um, and I can describe what ha the status quo in Israel in a way that would make just about everybody in America say they need some judicial reform. Because suppose the current majority on the Supreme Court could basically veto any future nominee to the court, meaning that, you know, the, the current conservative majority could just, like, not let anybody with a different point of view onto the court forever, to the end of time, and there was nothing any politician or political body could do about it. People, this would drive people in the United States crazy. On the other hand, um, Suppose there is no constitution giving you, you know, any, any protection, really, from whatever the Supreme Court might decide, and now your political enemies are planning to pack the court, and they want to say, oh, and by the way, a simple majority in the Knesset can overrule any Supreme Court decision. I mean, what you're basically saying there is, you know, 61 Knesset members are, have the power, have unlimited power. There is nothing they can't do. And, and I would say any American in their right mind would say both of those are radically unacceptable ideas. Um, so, and, and yet in Israel, in a sense, you've got each side is implicated in part of an idea that Americans just couldn't stand. Now, the way that, and again, I'm not going to, you know, the idea that I would be able to arbitrate a constitutional issue in a country where I don't speak the language, don't live, etc. You know, this is all from an observer. 
But, um, you know, Israel clearly does, I think, need a constitution, a written constitution, so that I would be, you know, I would be solaced in my, you know, if, okay, I don't like the current court. Well, there's some things the court can't do. There's some things the government can't do. I like the Bill of Rights. I don't want it to go away. Um, so we need something like that in Israel. But to get that in Israel is very difficult because, for one thing, it would include Arab citizens of Israel would have to be, you know, would have to have absolutely equal rights. There's no way you could write a constitution that would sort of openly say, and by the way, we have the second tier of citizens. Um, but if you do that, then a lot of pet projects of a lot of people in Israel can't, can't be carried through. So the fight over the Constitution isn't just what it would be in the United States. It's sort of generic, okay, what are the rules of procedure, the rules of the game going to be? But actually, really important policy outcomes are clearly linked to every piece of debate over Constitution. So it's a tough problem. I honestly, you know, I think, I can't say I know Bibi Netanyahu intimately. I do think from what I've seen of him and what I have seen of, of the results of some of the policies he's had, I think he's probably got ahead, you know, he's got in his head the ability to come up with something and a better chance of steering it through than, than others, yet... Bibi has made a lot of enemies, uh, in some cases maybe necessary enemies, in some cases gratuitous, unnecessary enemies. But in any case, um, he will probably, he would have a very hard time becoming the arbiter at a moment like this. So I think, you know, it, it's a tough situation. Uh, ultimately, what I think held, held these warring factions together back in the 40s was their common realization that if they, you know, what is it, as Benjamin Franklin said, if we don't hang together, we'll all hang separately. And that was a very real fear. Now, you know, the, with the Arab countries seeming to be a bit more fr friendly, um, you know, with Israel enjoying a lot of margin of military superiority, does that, does the lessening of that fear reduce people's willingness to make sacrifices to achieve a real compromise, even if it's a painful compromise? Big question mark. In some ways, Iran may be Israel's best friend right now. Yeah, as Golda Meir said, I think during the 67 war, the Israeli secret weapon was always having no alternative. <laughs> and um, yeah. the, the reality is some Israelis do have an alternative now. <laughs> they, can, they can just leave. Uh, yeah. It, it, it's interesting that we implied earlier that polarization could be a, a, a feature, not only a bug, because we, we just talked with our friend Balaji, where, where he has the provocative thesis that the, the polarization in America is so extreme that for blue and red, it's almost like Sunni and Shiite. Uh, and it's almost like per, the partition era. Obviously, it's an extreme claim. But then he, he goes deeper to say that, you know, in California, we should look at it or San Francisco, at least like a tribal fight. And that one side is 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 competing, uh, the blue side, and that the gray and the red, or, or the other side, is not competing. And he's advocating for for, for for that. You also have a post where you talk about, um, hey, could California be be Republican again, or does California have to be a one party state? Why don't you unpack your your thoughts there? Sure. Um, 
I, I, I mean, really, I'm, I'm just looking at history. I suppose this is one of the occupational hazards of being old, is you sort of naturally default to history. But, um, you know, the first time California went blue was in the 1930s. It had been a red state, um, you know, since the Civil War. But in the 1930s, you have this wave of poor rural migrants streaming into the state. And they voted, you know, it, it went 60 percent for FDR in 1936. And the Okies were kind of the folk heroes of the American Communist Party, Pete Seeger. There was all this sentimentality. And the Okies are going to bring socialism to America and uh, all the Woody Guthrie songs about this. It was, a, it was a real moment in American history. And it did move the state left. and. And the state government had a very ambitious pro set of programs. Federal spending was very popular there. And yet by the 1960s, California has turned in, you know, California sends Nixon into national life. That's not enough. It then sends Reagan into national life. And for 40 years, California is kind of the center, the hotbed of American conservatism. And the children of those Okies, were the sort of base of Reagan's coalition. So, and you know what happened? I, it doesn't seem to me to be that much of a mystery. The system worked for them. Uh, cheap housing, uh, availability of mortgage, good jobs, uh, good infrastructure. Their lives were terrific. It's fun, fun, fun till the dad, daddy takes the T-bird away, not the international. You know, that's not, not the way they were thinking. And California is the hotbed of this consumer society. Um, and so I ask myself, I look at the poor rural migrants streaming into California today, how would they vote if they had the chance to buy houses? Right now, the median house price in California is like $800,000. Suppose, you know, the, these sort of... Um, green land use laws, they basically trash it all and prioritize, okay, we're going to desalinate water with nuclear power, we're going to have, you know, we're going to really make blue collar jobs, we are going to, we're going to make cheap housing across the state. Um, how would people vote if one party is saying, vote yourself a house, vote for me, and this is what I'm going to get you? I don't think that is an impossible concept by any means. And unfortunately, right now, I think the California uh, Democratic Party is sort of so in hoc on the one hand, kind of the green bourgeoisie up in the hills, and then the public sector unions who would rather see the you know, children of California be illiterate than... Uh, uh, than have union, th their control over the educational system be in, in any way interfered with. Um, and, you know, there's no, it's hard to see how the Democrats, with the, working with these constraints, are actually able to come up with a program that would help people in California. So there's an opportunity there. Now, will the Republicans seize it or will some new party come along? I can't tell you. That's the future where my, you know, as Yogi Berra says, that uh, prediction is always difficult, and especially when it involves the future. So uh, my crystal ball is as cloudy as anybody else's. But just looking at the past, there seems to me 
a huge electoral political opportunity for an identity-based immigrant party in California that's about opportunity for those who don't have. I, I fully agree. I think I think if you sell if you sell the American dream to uh, immigrants in California, si se puede. I think I think that that does probably pretty well, and uh, they want their kids to to learn algebra. They they want to own a home, and they don't want to pay the high cost of living in otherwise very nice place to live. Right, and why you know, and what is wrong with that? Nothing is wrong with that. Uh, they should have it. And, and, and our system and our institutions are perfectly capable of delivering another shot of the mass prosperity that Americans knew in the 50s and 60s. It is, you know, there, it, it, the, the obstacles are all in our heads. They are not an objective reality at all. Professor Mead, can I interrupt, can I interrupt your, your soft little segue? Erica, ask you a random question. Did you watch the Gold of My Ear biopic by chance? You who's so versed in Israeli... Uh, not yet. Israeli, not yet? Okay. Having finished the book, I've taken a little bit of, of a break from immersing myself I so see. fully into it. But uh, I, it's on my list. Is it good? I, I, well, I, I won't say any spoilers about how the Yom Kippur War ended. I, I know that maybe some people haven't tuned in yet and watched the movie. So um, <laughs> it's, it's okay. I mean, I, I don't think it's great. I don't think it was terrible. Um, it's very much not a history of the Yom Kippur War. It's very much... Uh, a sort of view into Golda's life during that period, or supposedly during that period. Um, it's worth watching, I think. You might enjoy it. Yeah. Well, I will tell you, one experience I had working on the book was that Henry Kissinger agreed to go over the, sort of help me with any factual problems in the sections on, on the Nixon administration. And, you know, he was, at the time, I think he was, what, 98, maybe 97, it was during COVID, so we were doing it on Zoom. It was over a two-hour Zoom call where he is going through this line by line, and he would say things like, oh, now, wait a minute, who was that? It was the undersecretary, oh, what was his name? And then he comes up with the name 50 years later. It is extraordinary. But that experience of having somebody like him, a, you know, an actual participant in this stuff, really go at you over this you know, I, I think uh, I never got a PhD, but I suspect this was harder than any oral exam uh, they ever get. It was really something. I would have loved to do that with her. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I, in, in the film, uh, Kissinger is the other big uh, sort of role in the film, played by Lee Schreiber. And in fact, some of the scenes in the film are actually from Kissinger anecdotes. Um, so it's interesting. Somebody else also bent, bent Kissinger's ear about what happened in order to stage some of the scenes in which Golda would famously receive dignitaries in her living room and like serve them cake and give them coffee, which was very... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's very good. You know, actually, Angela Merkel sort of reminded me of her in some ways in that, you know, I had a dinner with, with her at one point and she really was, I mean, she was grandmotherly. You know, she patted my hand in this very sweet way and wanted to make sure I had enough of everything. People say, you know, sometimes you hear women complain that there is no female way of doing power. Golda Meir and Angela Merkel absolutely found a vocabulary and a way to project both power and, fem you know, I'm a woman, so what? And I do what I need to do. 
And actually, I think in both cases, they ended up being rather endearing, even to people whose livers they were in the process of cutting out. Oh, and, and they could be absolutely fearsome. I mean, the film highlights that Golda threatened to let 30,000 troops of the Egyptian Third Army, which was encircled in Sinai, literally starve to death if she didn't get what she wanted. And so it's, uh, there's a lot right. of hand-padding and cake, but there's, there's also a lot, some fearsome threats as well. Yeah. No, they, they, pull, they put it together really well. They have a great vocabulary for international relations. There was a moment, by the way, where Boris Johnson said, well, if we had more women in power, you know, this would never have happened in Ukraine. If Putin were a woman, he wouldn't have invaded Ukraine. <laughs> have you never heard of Catherine the Great? What is, what is wrong with you? <laughs> it was a woman who conquered Ukraine in the first place. <laughs> Let, let, let's wrap. Maybe in closing, uh, uh, Alana asked us to ask you, what was it like to have Arafat give you a back rub uh, and, and perhaps a gentle kiss? <laughs> well, I, I have to say it was a unique moment in my life. Um, <laughs> you know, I've had many interactions with many world leaders over over the course of my career. And and that one really does stand out. Um I thought, uh, you know, if I ever write a memoir, the title might be The Night Yasser Arafat Kissed Me. <laughs> um, I, I think that would definitely draw some attention to the book. Uh, and, you know, it was, I mean, it was, it, it uh, now I'm going to hastily say it wasn't, it wasn't what it sounds like. Uh, he, uh, uh, you know, that we had a meeting and then at the end, um, you know, it's sort of customary to take a picture of people at a meeting. And Arafat was not a tall man. And so he, he generally speaking, liked situations that made it, liked photographs in which that was not evident. And one way to do that was for other people to be seated and for him to be standing behind. And as it just so happened, he was standing behind me for the picture. And while everybody is getting seated and organized, he starts digging his thumbs into my back. And actually, it was pretty relaxing. You know, he was, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. He was good at it. He did it very well. And then at the end, when the picture was taken, he just very, very nicely and sweetly bent over and kissed me softly on the top of my head. That's what happened. Man, but in my in my memoir, I think it's going to start out with it that unforgettable jasmine scented <laughs> night in Gaza. <laughs> That's uh, a, a, a beautiful note to end on, perhaps, uh, Professor. Wait, 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 Tyler. Tyler Cowan wanted to know what country are you excited to travel to next? Uh, that I haven't been to, huh? Um, you know, the place I most want to go, I think, that I haven't been to is Iran, but I don't think this is the year. Um, I would, I just found out I have a first cousin who has moved to Nepal, where she will be, I am told, the first woman pilot for tourist pilots doing, um, you know, little, you know, flights around Mount Everest, and also hot air balloons. So I think I want to go visit my cousin in Nepal and see what she's up to. Great. Wonderful. Thanks for coming. Thanks for Thank, coming. You, Thank you, Professor Mead. Thanks a lot.
Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. 